There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. You are listening to Missed Apex podcast, a mailbag episode. This is maybe a safe place. Welcome to Miss Apex Mailbag. I'm your host, Antonia Rankin, and this week we are addressing your questions and comments from our inbox. So thank you to everyone that's got in touch, and you can do so yourself using our email address, which is feedback at missedapex.net. So let's kick off by answering some of your questions, but before we do so... I am being instructed to remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind support of our patrons and advertising partners. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong and quite frequently are, but we're first. We have an international panel to help answer all of your questions this week. So live from Dasbar in Manhattan probably it's matt you know if they built a wall directly across the track it would solve all track limits for all time sounding very american with the building of a wall and joining us from a copenhagen nightclub spinning the decks is dj christian peterson hi how you doing for pronouncing my surname correctly for the first time on the podcast yeah what's this i hear apparently spanners has been dropping the ball i'm i'm as surprised as you are Shocking. Shocking. See, you guys, this is why I'm the objectively better host. And of course, our Miss Apex favourite, or at least one of my favourites, joining us from a dank, smoky pub in Crawley is Chris Stevens. In Crawley? You think I'm that posh? No way. I wish I knew where Crawley was. I I, I probably couldn't point it out on a map blindfolded. I mean, but... it is not far from it. It's about a half hour drive from me. But uh, no, I would <laughs> never be considered uh, that posh. And uh, can, I, can, I, can I just take a second and brag about myself for a moment? Because I've lost oh, 10 kilos. It. I've lost 10 wow, kilos. Oh, 10 kilos? And I feel like I look 
flipping fantastic right now. So I'm really glad oh, that all you uh, YouTube watchers out there, if you're not watching the podcast, then you should be a Missed Apex uh, F1 on YouTube. Check me out because I look fantastic. <laughs> Everyone who's listening to the recorded show, you really are missing out here because Chris does look absolutely phenomenal. Edible even. Those 10 kilos just slid right off. Anyway, without any more self-promo or shameless flattery, let's get on to the mailbag. So, first up, we have Justin's email. And Justin has been wondering what makes a driver memorable? What makes them go down in history? Now, I'm going to admit, I'm 20 years old. So, as much of the F1 world I can remember, probably earliest I can remember is Jensen Button's Braun era. And I have to say, what a golden era that was. Everyone has a favourite James Bond, don't they? Whether it's Pierce Brosnan or Daniel Craig. He's my version of that. He's my favourite Bond of the paddock. But he has asked, Justin has asked, do you feel there are any current or recent drivers who are pretty good, but they'll be mostly forgotten in the next decade or two? He's always felt that Ralph Schumacher, despite not being the best Schumacher to ever drive a Formula One car, although certainly not the worst, doesn't find his way into many conversations. And he's saying that even though his stats are comparable to Ricardo's, so six wins, 27 podiums, various decent successes... I feel due to his charisma and media attention throughout his career, Danny Rick will continue to be talked about long after he's retired, whereas Ralph Schumacher has fallen into relative obscurity. Now, he makes a good point here, Justin, in that there are a lot of drivers on the grid right now who I personally would say are pretty good drivers who have promising racing careers in front of them, but they might not go down in history. So, Chris, what do you think? I think it's a lot different uh, now compared to, say, when Ralph Schumacher was driving, just because of the the sheer growth of um, the, the the sport itself, and therefore the the knowledge of not just the headline players. Uh, let's say, you know, the fact that Drive to Survive, especially for the first season or two, got to focus more on the midfielders than the you know than the, the Mercedes and the Red Bulls um, of the um, of the sport they they suddenly are put to the forefront and there's a lot more uh, depth of knowledge of all the drivers across the field um i feel um, and rather rather just the um than just the top liners but i feel like what really uh, helps as well is being part of big moments in history right mm, so absolutely. ricardo zonta is only remembered for being driven by both Mick Hakkinen and Michael Schumacher at the same time on the run into Lake Arm in the 2000 Belgian Grand Prix. I don't think 99.9% of Formula One fans could name another Ricardo Zonta moment or anything else he, he actually did in his career. So I feel like uh, that's something that helps. Well, I have to say, I completely agree. I do think there's something about social media and, like you said, Drive to Survive that really immortalizes these drivers and makes them into characters more so than just, you know, F1 drivers who maybe have one or two seasons. I think one who doesn't get talked about enough for me is Rubens Barrichello. Again, going back to the Braun era, but a great driver. And where is he now? Nobody knows. I mean, Christian, would you say you agree? Do you think that social media plays into it a lot? Um <clears throat> Definitely does, but I think we we as as consumers we need to put a name on it. We need to put a color on it or something like that. And if someone has a brother, if someone has a dad, or we, we just put them in a different light. 
And uh, uh, remember the initial question? We didn't read all of it out loud, but it mentioned Ralph Schumacher compared to his brother. And there was a, I mean, there was big reason for Ralph Schumacher not being as famous as his brother. Uh, and that was his work ethics, his way of socializing, how he embraced the team. Ralph Schumacher didn't have any of that. They had the same mother, uh, but they're not the same person. So I think the way we look at the driver somehow, sometimes they become more the poster on the side of the wall than actual human beings. And uh, I think that's always been a thing, right? No, absolutely, Matt. Well, I, I hate to disagree with everybody about everything at the very start of the show. No, you don't. You love to disagree. My word. Go but on I'm, anyway. I'm going to go the opposite direction here. I think due to how rapidly the social media cycle turns over, I think it's going to be a much bigger deal because there were fewer races, fewer drivers back then. And I will be the first to admit, you don't have to go back very long before you run into drivers who've won races that no one or people will be like, oh, what? Me? Huh? Who? But I think if we're talking about drivers from this era, I don't, I don't, I think Schumacher's memory, Ralph, that is, uh, has probably already lasted far longer than Ricciardo's unless he goes on to some kind of other fame, like commentating or something like that, post Formula One. And um, I mean, just I'll throw it out there. Verstappen, Hamilton, Alonso, and that's pretty much it of the drivers driving right now, unless someone goes on to win a driver's championship. In that case, they might be remembered longer. I, w I would slightly disagree with that, um, Matt, because Ricardo, for me, is kind of a poster boy for Formula One. You see, he's just been on, oh, what is it? Is it Letterman or one of those types of shows um, in America? He's done, he's done pretty much all of them in promoting F1, whether it's the US Grand Prix or the Las Vegas Grand Prix this week um, as well. You know, he, he's basically the F1 poster boy and probably the most universally popular driver in Formula One. And he's also had some pretty mega wins to his name uh, as well. Uh, when you think about Ricardo wins, they have normally come in adverse conditions, right? So uh, the Hungary one in 2014 is particularly memorable when you had him, Hamilton and Alonso fighting for the win. Of course, you've got the big Monaco disappointment and then the Monaco redemption two years later as well. I, I think that those stories, especially coming in the time that they have done, is easily, easily going to outlive his time in Formula 1. It's not like, well, look what happened. As soon as he got dropped uh, at the end of uh, last year, whatever it was, all the all the tweets are, get Ricardo back in Formula 1. And sure enough, the second that De Vries is under-delivering and we want more more of a marketing tool in the AlphaTauri, they ship in Ricardo. And he's going to be way more of a, a, a popular um, choice in terms of a marketability point of view than I think any other driver in the grid. Yeah, I will say though, it's Ricardo, obviously, like you said, he's got some fantastic race wins to his name. And because he's such a big personality, I don't doubt that he'll be around the paddock, even if he isn't in F1 in years to come. But even winning winning races, etc., doesn't necessarily, as we all know, stamp your name in F1 history. But I wouldn't even say that winning championships does. I mean, I've got, this is such a random F1 fan thing about myself. I've got a picture of every single F1 world champion who has ever been. And some of them I've gone through and I, I go, I've never heard that name in my life. 
you know, these men once dominated the sport in their own eras. And I still don't know who they are. Yeah, well, and I think you're right. And I think as much as Ricardo is the flavor of the moment-ish, although plenty of people now know him mainly as having lost to Norris two straight years at McLaren, I would, I would, I would happily wager some very small sum of money, enough to pay for uh, your favorite drink at your local, that if we talk about drivers out of this era that are most remembered that aren't Verstappen, Hamilton, and Alonso, it's going to be Grosjean. Because they're going to show that crash forever on TV. So if you want to be known, it's either going to be in an incident like that. Now, I, I know you think I'm joking, but but I'm I'm also kind of serious about it. You have to do something like you either come to attention doing something like that or you win all the races and the championships. And, and people in between in a decade or two, they're just they'll be there. People who were fans of the sport will will probably go back and learn something about them or they'll come up from time to time, but they're not going to be day-to-day names in the way that those other three drivers are. If you think of drivers like uh, the Santa incidents and stuff like that, they are what I would com- compare to, let's say, Barbie girls or uh, Informer uh, with snow. They are one-hit wonders and they break through. It's instant. They're, everyone talks about it and then they're gone again. What I see Daniel Ricciardo doing is doing great albums. It's uh, He's a great person. I mean, uh, the world is hungry for good per- persons, personalities, people being empathetic and stuff like that, smiles, teeth. <laughs> it's it's just something that works on humans. Uh, and I know for Absolutely, one, yeah. if I was at a F1 party, I would go to the room where Daniel Ricciardo is. <laughs> I think we all would, wouldn't we? Yeah. I mean, like Justin said, he's got the charisma, he's got the media attention, but... I'm going to disagree with Matt, like Matt's point here. Someone like Grosjean, for example, because I, whilst I'm sure all of us have kind of war trauma flashbacks to the eras of Grosjean crashing in pit lanes and spinning every five minutes, I don't think we remember Grosjean for who he is as a driver or, or from that incident, for example. You just remember the fact of the incident and the fact of how crazy and shocking it was. You know, if someone's coming to the sport in the future and they've not watched Grosjean but they've seen the crash they don't remember him and they don't remember him as a driver they remember the fireball Chris I I think you're absolutely right because they'll remember the incident but they won't remember Roman um, specifically and I feel like it's the same with uh, Spa 2012 when he flew over the top of uh, Alonso and nearly took his head off right Mm -hmm. everyone remembers the moment right Mm -hmm. and and, uh, I think people uh, even Go, go as far as thinking how that affected the the championship. It was a very rare DNF for Fernando Alonso um, that mm-hmm. year, Alonso being one of the more talked about drivers of the sport. I suppose the interesting question to follow up on this, would Nico Hulkenberg be remembered as the guy who never got a podium or choked podium opportunities in Formula One? Because that's, that's going to keep coming up uh, at, at races. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't want to think about Nico Hulkenberg being forgotten because I really like him. He's really yeah. lovely. And he's, he's yeah, I guess kind of like you said, he's re- remembered and talked about in a fond way because everyone kind of feels for him that he's not got the podium that we all kind of want him to get, you know, the super sub of F1, if you will. But um, I don't know. I think there's various ways one can go down in history in F1. I mean, crashes, yeah. 
fair enough. I'll take Matt's point on that one. I, I specifically remember one with, I think, Mark Webber becoming airborne and literally flying through Valencia. the air. Yeah, in there we go. Literally straight into a barrier. He believed he could fly and fly he did. But I think in terms of actually making a meaningful impact on the sport, I think there's you've got to have something about you, don't you, Christian? I think if you ask Tim O'Glock uh, what he's <laughs> asked most about, for instance, that would be like the Brazil incident, right? But he's a very, very talented racing driver. He's been mm-hmm. in numerous series, and he probably hates that question. But I also think if you ask him when he's 80, if mm-hmm. he still hates the question, he will be like, well, it just became part of my racing career, and at least mm-hmm. someone talked to me or talked about something with my name. So it's a bit give and take, but I don't think uh, the drivers like Sonta is, I don't think at first they want to be known for the incident. They want to be known for their own overtakes and stuff, of course. Uh, no, see. of course, you want to be remembered for the good things. But sure. as someone, someone mentioned earlier, I don't think there's any such thing necessarily as good or bad press once your career's over. You just want to be remembered. You want to go down in F1 history. I mean, it's, it's why the- is a perfect example of that. No, exactly. You know what? He was an exact example I was thinking of because- before the whole, I mean, incident with the championship and now he's coming back up, bringing it all back up because he was sat in bed one night thinking about it for too long and started overthinking and butt-dialed his lawyer. I, I, to be honest, was kind of forgetting about him. I mean, I remember him having, what was it, a really nasty head injury at one point and then there was the issue with the championship and off he's gone. He kind of commentated sometimes and now he's trying to get back into the popular common conversations, Chris. Well, see, my defining Timo Glock memory, to be cool and, you know, not 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 like pick the same one that everyone else did, you know, uh, is when he called uh, Mercedes uh, beeping idiots for quitting dtm what a lovely memory i'm sure he'd really appreciate having a discussion with you about that one yeah sure. it's, it's, like, it's amazing like you said, they, they just want to have it i'm sure if you sit down with most xf1 drivers they'd probably just appreciate you remembering any defining moments of their career especially if it's five ten years in the future so not to go straight from talking about Timo Glock to drivers who were absolutely terrible because the two are not linked. <laughs> oh, um, no, no. Good, good transition because, there. <laughs> because the live chat uh, has uh, reminded me of certain drivers. Uh, oh, what like, have they dug up? Go like, on. Uh, so Taki Inu, uh, and I'm sure, um, I can't remember his first name, but uh, Nisani uh, Senior, um, mm. Roy, Roy Nisani's dad. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, as much as it pains me to say it, people are going to talk about Nicholas Latifi in that way as well, my boy. You mean um, Gotifi? Yeah. Put some respect on his name, please. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, and and yeah, things like that for being, but but again, for all the wrong re- reasons, for being mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. bad and always. And you know, Grosjean had the same kind of reputation where he was always running into people. So did uh, Maldonado as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Like what? It, what is the first Pastor Maldonado memory you think of? Is it when he got distracted by his own steering wheel and drove off the circuit and into a wall, or is it when he uh, <laughs> is it when he won the Spanish Grand Prix, or is it when he did something else really uh, stupid? Uh, you know, it's, there's there's a um, there's a big variety with Pastor, yeah. which is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, okay. If we look back on the last ten years, then or so of f1 drivers who have won races you're right how many of them do we actually go because i i can't say i ever sit 
very commonly and think about Maldonado. You know, he doesn't work his way into my daydreaming. So if we look back at the last however many years at race winners, Matt, who who would we remember? Well, I like this. How about we play it like a little game? I'll start reading names about a decade back. Okay. And I'll skip the ones you've already mentioned because you've already blown a couple, quite frankly. And I'll ignore oh, the fact that the chat is telling me that Maldonado has more wins than Norris right now. Ouch. And I'm <laughs> well, I mean, again. Um, okay, so Maldonado, Barrichella, Massa. Yeah, sure. Okay, here's the first one. And we're going back to about 2008 now. Okay, so do we stop you when there's one who we Stop go? me when I say a name and you're like, oh, okay. there's a name I haven't thought about in a while. <laughs> oh, and right, I, I'm right. trusting you to be honest. And by you, I mean you, because I know I can't trust Chris. And Christian, well, what? he just looks like trouble, so. Okay, but, right. My integrity uh, is, of course, infallible. Right, let's go. Who do I, right. who do I not remember? Bear in but, mind, can we just say for the listeners, I was probably about three years old when some of these people won. So give me it, some grace. It is absolutely fine. Just the first name I get to and you're like, haven't thought about it. Let me know. Got you. Let's go. Hecky Kovalainen. Kovalainen, yeah. Maybe. Should I go back a little further? Yeah. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip Robert Kubica because he was a more recent conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember him. Well, and Robert's also more active in yeah. like modern racing because Hecky's, Hecky's just been in Japan for the last, what feels like 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are we ready for the next one? Okay, keep going, keep going. Giancarlo Fisichella. I knew someone was going to bring up Fisichella in this. See, <laughs> there we go. Bingo. Uh, it I, took I, us, that, that's 2006. Okay, yeah, that would explain why I was literally that's, three years old. <laughs> that's, oh, but that, it, that's exactly how far back you have to go. And he and we're talking three wins, a good driver, very well respected, a long career, 1996 to 2009. But not so memorable. Not, yeah. And I think I think for the vast majority of the grid right now, this will be their fate. Oh. He's memorable, I think, uh, for like a couple of the stand-up performances in 2009 as well. Like when Force India suddenly turned up at um, at Spa and would have won that race if they had Kurz, for example, because they just couldn't get past Kimi Raikkonen, who had uh, the Kurz at the time. This was before it was on all the cars, um, when it was in its first year of development. So uh, things like that, because he suddenly went on this mad streak. Didn't he also drive for Ferrari that year as well? And suddenly was like one of the worst decisions he ever made because he went from fighting for podiums to suddenly right down the back of the grid in a far inferior car. That um, seems a common mistake for drivers, doesn't it? Paul yeah. Sebastian didn't learn a lesson there, did he? But, but no, we're, proof we're proving Matt's him. point here, though. We're proving his point. If the only reason you think about a driver is like, who is somebody that I've forgotten about? You know, it speaks for itself. If if the only reason you've thought about him is because you were like, oh, I knew he'd come up in a conversation mm. about drivers who have become irrelevant and no one really <laughs> thinks about anymore. You know, it's so, and it, but it's so brutal to say it that way, isn't it? These drivers who have had successful Formula One careers, who have kind of just been lost to history. Chris? Well, so I know we've only had like three world champions in the last 15 years, but Nico Rosberg is probably one of the least talked about uh like recent drivers and bearing in mind he's tried to maintain a, a pretty a pretty mm -hmm. um you know not in your face career but you know no, he's but doing, he's there he's, he's there. doing youtube he's still doing mm. sky appearances he's doing mm -hmm. all these different things and yet he's not getting vaccinated yeah, I, well, yeah. allegedly antonia allegedly um 
you know, we we don't actually talk so much unless it's it's only ever really in the context of uh, Lewis Hamilton, isn't it? Um, well, yeah, and it's always Nico on the commentary going, well, when I raced Lewis, mm. <laughs> and then some slight dig at Lewis. I'd, I'd rather hear about when he was teammates with Michael Schumacher. Uh, or, or, I mean, um, Christian, do you, do you ever uh, find Lewis. yourself thinking about about Rosberg longing for the days of a competitive championship where it was quite literally neck and neck Tom and Jerry style? I, I think actually it was really impressive what he did. Um, I agree. And I find it psychologically being quite the performance that year, more mm -hmm. than maybe perhaps the driving, because she's always been a great driver. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think he handles himself pretty good. If you think about who he is, like he's the Don Johnson of uh, our era, the way he's dressed, uh, his lifestyle, he's... Uh, uh, to people who doesn't know Don Johnson, he was one of the police officers in Miami Vice, which was a series in the eighties where everyone <laughs> was wearing like Miami colors, Miami Vice. Um, yeah, I mean, he he could he could so easily be the target of all the criticisms uh, mm -hmm. in the world, right? But he still just I think he handles himself so perfectly. I, I saw him recently talk about Lando Norris uh, and his uh, sort of mental side and approach to Formula One. And he was like, oh, I was thinking about uh, texting him because uh, I have a guy who can help him. I, I just like, uh, I think he's a good person inside, actually. Yeah, I, I agree. I, he, I, he, he, he did beat Lewis Hamilton, right? I mean, well, yeah, and then immediately went, mic drop, off I go. <laughs> yeah, I would have done the same, I think. Yeah, I agree, Matt. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, if you want to be known beyond your Formula One career and you don't win championships, you're going to have to become a commentator or move on to some other media that keeps you known for that. I mean, if you think back. Absolutely. Yeah. Villeneuve is perhaps a great example. I was thinking, or maybe have someone make a film about you like Rush. How many people really remembered much about James Hunt or Nicky Lauda pre-Mercedes before that film got made? And then That's everybody nice. knew about them all over again. So, yeah, maybe there will be a, a happy second life for some lucky racers down the road somewhere in <laughs> entertainment land. <laughs> the live chat has just reminded me of a great uh, one. Uh, and uh, remember, you can join the live chat if you uh, support us on Patreon. Wink. Uh, nice, Tim Rudd, one. Waffle Stoffel Van Dorn. I, uh, and this astonishes me because... <laughs> Because he's a Formula E world champion. He's mm -hmm. a he's a Le Mans racer. He's mm -hmm. done a lot since he left F1. And uh, yeah, suddenly, uh, well, personally, it's kind of faded into um, ob obscurity. I have paid mm -hmm. less attention to Formula E this year, it must be said. But that also being said, didn't have a great year uh, in 2023. So that's uh, probably something to do with it as well. I think we've had some very quality discussions here. So to summarise, Justin, thank you for sending in your question. You have to have something about you. And some drivers, it seems, just don't have that. So Justin ended his message by saying, as always, thank you for all you do to remain independent, though I am pulling for you to get some of that stroll money someday. As are we, Justin. And you two can assist in us becoming and staying independent because we are supported patreon.com slash Apex. So I think uh, the next thing we should really talk about is the thing that is most broken in Formula One. And that, of course, is qualifying, because 
and I've made this argument before, qualifying is just mostly boring. It's just cars driving around. It's a mess. And Sam Parker has written in to agree with me. Well done, Sam. And he says, why does the qualifying format get such good press when it's boring to watch? You never see the cars driving. You get one driver completing a lap on board, and that's it. After that, just cars going around the last corner and random times being shouted with no one having any idea who's going to wind up where. So this, to me, sounds like a comms problem. So let's ask Chris Stevens his opinion first. So to me, this is a, a, a limitation of broadcasting, right? Because it's not the format's fault, is it? Unless you did a one-shot quality where everybody gets the just the whole track dedicated to themselves, which Formula One did used to have, but it has its own downsides. Uh, you know, for example, it means that the track is going to be at different states for all the drivers. So effectively, whoever you put out last is going to get the best track conditions uh, so that's not always the always always considered the way to go for me this is a, a, a broadcasting issue where i don't think we see enough of you know uh, multi-camera views uh, where you know we could we could follow this guy in one corner and then somebody else and and you know there is the technology to do that uh, now if you're using like a multi-viewer uh, for example then i'm sure you absolutely love qualifying because you've got all the views uh out of out of everyone so i think it's it's kind of been narrowed in by by the broadcasters i totally agree with the premise of the question uh i love the old uh qualifying format as chris just talked about and the reason for that is uh, of course i'm from uh from a tv brain when i watch that you what you have 20 stories to tell during qualifying and it's so intense and it's, I don't know how they start, if it's uh, how they finished last race, whatever. You follow the car around the last corner and then you're on board all the time. Maybe see it from outboard as well, but you're still, the, the story is this one lap. And when you can tell the story like that, you have a much better uh, a presentation on TV and people will immediately understand how important it is, you know, the drama, etc. But I, I also agree with the fact when you watch one of these uh, qualifying sessions and your favorite driver goes out when it starts raining at the end of the session, you're like, what? That's unfair. Uh, so uh, I, 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 from a sporting point of view, you can't really do that. But I, one thing I do liked uh, was the thing they did during sprints where Q1 was hard tire, Q2 was medium, Q3 was uh, soft for all cars, and it was mandatory. That probably could do a little bit of thing. Some cars wouldn't like the hard tire, something like that. Yeah, it does highlight the differences between cars, especially, for example, on the Ferraris, where they struggle to light up those hard tires. But it does take out, and it does it takes out that element of strategy on a quali where you see cars coming out on maybe a scrub set of mediums and it's good as a fresh soft. Uh, yeah, so the thing, first of all, I want to give some hope to Sam. It is possible, as has been said, to make qualifying better for yourself. The things you're going to need are the following. You're going to need a live timing screen and you're going to need a track map so that when you see, and to me, this is the thing I find that broadcasts miss out the most, is the order they go out in is the order you need to be watching and that while it's exciting to focus on Max going faster than everyone in the last session of Q1, 
The real story is who is going to get cut. So you need to be looking at who's in the drop zone, who's very likely, like say, for example, we have a Red Bull in the drop zone. That's pretty much not worth paying attention to unless they get halfway through their lap and they're not getting better for whatever reason. But if you're paying attention to the order they go out in, then you know who's left on track to possibly knock people out. And I do feel like, and I do watch F1 TV, so maybe Sky is better or different about this, but I do feel like the art of being able to pitch that as it's happening is is getting a little bit more lost in these more modern times than I recall it being in earlier times. Though I was more soft-brained in earlier times, so who knows if I'm remembering it accurately or not. But Chris... I mean, truly, as, as a commentator, I just want your opinion now. Have you, have you had to call any qualies that are similar to this Formula One format? And if so, like, how would you like, how would you prepare for that? I've not done a, a dropout one. The one that we have in the GT Open uh, and the uh, support series that I commentate on is that it's just a 30 minute or 20 minute, whatever it is, session. And you just do whatever the best time that you can in that amount of time. Uh, and that usually comes down to, it, it normally plays out quite similar to just a quali uh, session, like be it Q3 or, or, or whatever, where they go out on two sets of tires and try and get that, uh, that, that time in, which, and again, usually comes towards the end of the session anyway, particularly because it's usually very early in the morning, so the track starts out normally pretty cold and also very green, so it gets warmer as the session uh, goes on. Can I just add a few things about the timing, lifetiming app experience? Because actually, if if you want to find qualifying entertaining, you can just do with the lifetiming app. You don't even need like a, a Formula One, F1 TV Pro. You can just buy the small subscription package and download the white with red logo app. And in there you have the old style timing screens, uh, the ones they used before Liberty, more or less. It's a bit updated. But actually that's the best one of them because you can you can pick your driver uh, or you can pick two competing drivers and you will get to see the numbers between them. And it's just so versatile and it gives you a much greater experience watching Formula One. And I would say if you're on the road, for instance, and you want to follow the, the, the qualifying, download the di- lifetiming app and watch it through that one because you get all the sector times. It's just much more engaging. I will say, though, should we have to do that? You know, as fans of the sport, should we have to, like, work hard to just make watching it interesting for us or exciting for us? Of course, it's nice to have a tailored experience where you can follow one specific driver. Of course, that's nice. But there is a point where you go, well, the production's just kind of not very good and that's something they should fix, right? I mean, I've I've watched and engaged with various different types of qualifying formats and a lot of it does just come down to how it's produced and how it's directed. I mean, is there, for example, like Chris was saying earlier, could we just borrow another format from a different series and just see how it how it goes, Chris? No, 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 no. Because we've seen... No. We, no, you don't mess with quality because we've there. tried to do it several times and it doesn't work, right? And the trouble is, you, un, un, unless you literally do one-shot quality where everybody has to chat to themselves, you're going to have the same problem with the broadcast regardless of what the format is, right? So in in the defense of the broadcasters, you've got 
at the start of quality, 20 cars, even at the end of quality, you've still got 10 cars going out there. What are you going to do? Just have 10 little mini screens all going at the same time? No. I do think there is an opportunity to utilize maybe a bit more picture in picture, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, they're there to try and tell the story of qualifying. And that to me is the job of the commentators. Okay. And a lot of the quality is, is used to kind of sit back and marvel at how great Formula One cars look on TV and just how fast they are, particularly like in the, Um, the 2019, 2020, when we had the fastest Formula One cars ever uh, produced, we would just sit back and go, wow, that looks absolutely stunning on, on, on TV. And that is uh, like the, one of the UPs of Formula One that they try and sell on TV. Yeah, I think, and it's really nice at the end of quali i think when they do the fastest quali lap whoever's on pole position they literally turn off the sound and they let you watch the whole lap listen to the whole lap and see it and it would just be nice to see a little bit more of that and yeah maybe this does open up a little bit more conversation about perhaps is it a commentary issue i mean is is there a stylistic difference that could be made chris you are the expert well, here but i'm i'm gonna so actually no i think you're gonna be biased so i'm gonna go to trumpets for this one so as much as i would love to pretend it was all chris stevens fault that quali is now boring for us to watch in reality <laughs> i cannot because it's really a production issue uh-huh because you have you should have at that level a producer if not several producers watching these things and feeding you times and who to watch and who's making mm-hmm. time who's about to fall out to help you because the amount of information comes very rapidly and it's incredibly mm-hmm. dense and the thing that I'm I would really be interested to know is to me this is the kind of thing it seems like if you wrote the correct custom software for it right. could sort of automatically help even those producers point the commentators towards the stories is that because they're unfolding in 90 seconds and you have five i mean oftentimes given the margins now you have maybe 10 people in play in the first qualifying you've got Mm -hmm. 90 seconds and it's all happening more or less at the same time because they're all following each other so maybe maybe that's where the focus needs to be but but I, i do agree it would be nice to see that improvement happen. I think you could do a lot with colors. Uh, uh, it's a very cheap trick, but the the fact that you have cars on not hot laps and you have cars on hot laps, and it's impossible to tell the difference because the ones not on hot lap have to go, what, 107, 10% uh, within the, the, the same time. So you, as a narrative, you, you just have a bunch of cars on some tarmac, and what is the story here? I think colors, better graphics would do a lot. But okay. It, it, so, sorry, sorry, but I'm just uh, even you know with the, with the format, it's they're all doing the laps at the same time because they all know when the best time to be on track is. The only variation yeah. you get in that is when a team makes it to Q3 and they've only got one set of soft tires. So maybe they do their hot lap while everyone else is heading back to the pits. So th- that's the only variety you're going to get. So you're always going to have at least you know seven eight nine potentially even ten cars all doing their laps at the same time trying to react to that live and following who's going quickest because you can only react to that and you can only do it either a third or two thirds of the way around the lap 
because mm-hmm. I doubt, well, I, I'd be 99% certain saying they're not getting the 200 meter mini sector times in the production office. And there are a ton of people in there working out, watching everything going on and saying, I've got this coming up and uh, I've got this, do you want this? And if you remember back to some of the uh, behind the scenes videos that Formula One put out, the best one was how the first lap of Silverstone 2021 unfolded from the production office point of mm-hmm. view. You will see it's just a, a beautiful orchestrated symphony, right? Mm-hmm. It's, and it, it really, is. It really it, it's is. incredible to watch, right? And so I don't think really there's much more they can do to try and do that. I think the next step will be picture in picture. And to answer the point about the commentators, so I'm not about to sit here and say... Oh, goodness. That, here we go. I'm not about right, to sit so here and it, say that Crofty and Alex Jakes, who are much more experienced and more talented than I, are doing a bad job of it. Because right, I'm going to cut you off here. I'm going to cut you off, right, because I've got the perfect solution to this qualifying issue because I'm also getting bored of talking about this now. I'm going to summarise it for any F1 producer who happens to be listening. Thing number one. Put Chris in the commentary box. He clearly thinks he can do a better job. We'll see how he goes. Baptism by fire. Um, everyone just be super harsh to him so that, you know, he kind of, if it, if it's good, it's good. If not, then we'll see. And that that's clearly not the issue then. And we also need about 10 different cars on screen at once. That would be really great. So if we can get that going, we'll give all of the producers loads of coffee before quali just to make sure that they can keep up with the pace. And uh, what else? Um... Color. Yeah, I think generally it's completely color. overhaul it. And colours, and colours. Okay, so we want colour-coded screens, Chris Stevens commentating, and a complete overhaul of all of the videos that are done. And there you go, Sam. That's how you make quality good. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And now on to another topic brought up by Ryan Marsh, who has said, love the show, always my first listen on my Monday morning after a race. Good job, Ryan. That's how you're meant to do it. Anyway, a couple of questions he's seen floating around online. So he's asked, Alonso showed us how good at race he is at racing at Brazil. Well, I think I think he showed us with his two world championships, but... 
But after many failed moves to various teams, does he lack the talent to drive a team forward in their development and win championships, drivers and constructors? Alonso is a fantastic fantastic driver he's very talented he's got great race craft he knows how to drive the cars and I think the fact that he's moved from team to team shows that he's adaptable and a good driver at working with a car but Ryan does raise an interesting point here which is he's skipped from Alpine to um, Aston Martin and neither of the teams have progressed in the way that we were almost promised I mean I was re-watch or I say rewatching. I'd never watched it before. I was watching Drive to Survive a couple of months ago and I found it really interesting, the story that followed Alonso at Alpine, which was we're bringing in this returning world champion. He's got heaps of experience, very talented guy. He's going to bring the team so far. We've got the car for him. And of course, you know, you've got to put a bit of it in the car. The Alpine was not fantastic, but Alpine didn't make the leaps and bounds with Alonso that they were hoping. And then when Alonso moved to Aston Martin, whilst they had a good start to the season, it's very clear that it's not an Alonso issue. The car has simply dropped off, but there's not a lot of development going with Alonso. So I'll pose the question to our panel. Alonso is a talented driver. He's won two world championships, but is he good enough to still be an F1? Matt? Is he good enough to be an F1? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think there are plenty of drivers that are far worse than him that are also in F1. You're not wrong. (laughs) I would, however, like to take a little premise with our question asker, if I could have that liberty. Go on, rip Ryan to shreds. (laughs) No, no, you you know me. I I do enjoy a good Alonzo. Okay. A a, a dig at Alonzo every now and then, but you got to be careful because he does have his fans. But the reality (laughs) is, I think from a car development point of view, it's very much less driven by the drivers than most people think. It's driven by the engineers and by aero and the driver's opinions will get asked at a certain point or they will they will explain what they are lacking to the engineers. But that's that's really an engineer thing. I think where you could legitimately question Alonzo and his team skills is asking yourself, does he have what it takes to have to work with a teammate and win a constructors championship if they have a car that is there or thereabouts because not everybody can work with a teammate like in in defense of you know Alonso's time uh, say McLaren uh, the second time and and Alpine uh, as well is that you know they that that was team issue the car not getting any better um, and particularly because Alpine just didn't kind of have the funding for it. I know everyone loves to talk about Lewis Hamilton bringing Mercedes, you know, up to the front of the field and helping he? to produce this dominant car. Did which he? no, no, that's the that's the thing. That car was pretty much, you know, was already eighty percent of the way uh, there. Mercedes playing the politics to mm-hmm. try and pull up, you know, a big advantage at the start of the turbo hybrid era, which is certainly what they did and i'm I'm not going to try and underplay lewis hamilton's role in making the car better 
Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't, you know, single-handedly pull that team together and say, guys, we're going to go and win the 2014 championship. It's just not how no, it works. Of course. This, this idea of drivers pulling the team together and pushing them forward and, you know, helping them to create championship winning uh, machinery is, is in far more nuanced ways, I think, than we ever really anticipate. There's a great mm-hmm. um, chat with Eddie Jordan about how when Damon Hill arrived at, at the Jordan team, you know, how he knew how to win. And yeah you know, would make decisions or offer advice. You know, I think I think the day before they won at Spa, EJ wanted him to go and, you know, be with a sponsor <laughs> rather than rather than, you know, actually prep for the for the race. And Damon okay. refused. So it's there are little things like that. But um mm-hmm. I I think Alonso has made bad career decisions. He's arrived at, you know, decent teams at completely the wrong uh, Has he time. made bad decisions though? Yes, he has because he left. He left Ferrari on the brink of a, a return to fighting up at the front of the field. Had Alonso been in that car in 2017, 2018, I'd argue he'd have two more world titles to his name. As would, would Ferrari. you? Yes, I would. That's a controversial opinion in itself. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Um, maybe, maybe 2017 less because I think that was a bit more car related. But 2018, yes, 100% Alonso would have brought home that okay. championship. Um, and uh, again, he's a, he's a, he arrived at Alpine and they weren't developing the car uh, properly. Aston Martin had been steered in in the wrong direction mm-hmm, uh, for a, a, a variety of reasons. I, I, but, I absolutely think he could still fight for a world championship given the right car. Well, yeah, but any good driver could in the right car. This is this. It's the same debate we always, always come back to in F1, which is, is it the driver or is it the car? You know, if you put Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen in a Haas would, you know, don't get me wrong, it wouldn't be winning races, but would, would they be doing any better? So Christian, would you say in this debate, in the context of Alonso, is it, his fault that he hasn't been doing as well or is it the car Mm, it's the car definitely oh okay (laughs) i think uh from a driver perspective i i think he's among the greatest absolutely Uh, i think he has everything and he even has the part that is probably not the nicest trait in humans but he has that uh verstappen has that as well Uh, the, the top drivers normally have it they do. It's them before others, uh, yeah. and it comes to uh, comes to life in different ways. But uh, I th- I think the the foundation of the question was: Does she have the talent to drive a team forward? Right? Yeah. And uh, to drive, uh, I mean, being a boss and being a great driver is two completely different things. Yeah. And I think to to lead anything uh, in regards to a lot of people uh, beneath you in the uh, structure of the team. You will mm-hmm. need to uh, have people gather around you and want to fight for you. Yeah. And uh, you can only have that for real if you give that vibe back. And Alonso only thinks about himself, I think, from that perspective. But doesn't any F1 driver? Well, I mean, I would argue exactly like you said, all of the greats seem to have that selfish string in them. Just look doesn't at the, every the way... driver want to just do well for themselves? But if you look at the way this Aston Martin, uh, Red Bull, Alonso going to uh, replace Paris rumor that was going about for a week <laughs> ago or whatever, yeah, that that rumor he 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 went uh, ballistic over it, right? He he got mm-hmm. mad and there's going to be repercussions. Uh, I mean, if if he was a team leader, he would be going like, "What? I'm not leaving my team. This is my team, right?" And you never hear Alonso go like that unless 
he's negotiating some contract and that you can just see through it. But what I would say is the, uh, while I'd argue a team's success will come from the factory and the car and, and in that direction to the garage, a garage can also make a difference. Uh, so an Alonso in the start of this season in that Aston Martin garage made a difference in the team. Well, I would just like to wrap up this Alonso discussion. Okay. Because I will apparently get to and say <laughs> that that from a technical point of view, he's more than capable of driving a team to a championship. I think for his side of the garage, he is more than capable of driving a team to the championship. And I think if he is paired with a teammate that he does not view as threatening, mm -hmm. he's more than capable of driving a team to a championship. But where I don't see it working for him, and I'm going to go really? back to that infamous year of 2007, Oof. is if he's got a teammate that pushes him too hard, or fights him too much, or whatever it is that gets under his skin in that peculiar way. Mm -hmm. I don't still, even now, at, at his with his increased maturity, I'm not convinced he would be able to handle it well if it was his teammate walking off of the driver's championship and he had to cooperate to get the constructors. Okay, Chris, just a quick one and then we'll move on. Yeah, I mean, well, look at his title winning years in 05, 06, unchallenged yeah. by his teammate. The title challenging years at Ferrari, Massa was nowhere near him. Um, yeah, just a tiny bit of uh, credit there to Formula 4 success for the EJ story I was telling. I couldn't remember the name of their show with DC and EJ, uh, but I've just looked it up and it's, yeah, Formula for Success. And I saw that on their TikTok. It's a great little channel. Oh, see, everyone, TikTok is the place to be. I wouldn't be here without TikTok. Honestly, if you guys who are watching slash listening today are not involved in TikTok, don't worry. I'm aware it is a young person's land and maybe not for everyone, but it's where the cool things happen. So um, if you want to be cool, get yourself on TikTok. It's not just for us young ones. Okay, my my quick point on Alonso. I like him a lot. I think he's a talented driver. I think like any championship winning driver, he's got the attitude for success. To answer your question, Ryan, and to really sum it up, I do not think he lacks the talent to drive a team forward, but it goes so beyond just a driver being able to feed back. But Alonso has the experience and the knowledge to give teams all of the information they need from a driver's end. So if something is missing, I'm not going to blame Alonso. Okay, now let's look forward, shall we, to next, to the coming races of the season because of course now we're dri driving towards ever and closer to the end of the season which is a very sad time for everyone where all F1 fans curl up in their rooms all winter not knowing what to do with themselves on a weekend we all have to find a way to develop a social life somehow and all of a sudden we can't get out of plans by saying sorry we've got the F1 but that is awaiting us we still have a couple more races left so let's talk about Vegas now there's been a lot of on the social media and in news generally about Vegas, about how suited the F1 cars are going to be to the circuit, how the circuit kind of looks like an upside down pig, how the strip of Vegas has been completely disrupted for months, which I've heard the residents are not too happy about. So sorry to our friends in America, but all in the name of entertainment and entertainment indeed, because it doesn't sound like the racing is going to be of the best quality, but we'll have to wait and see. The rumour at the moment is that it's a bit chilly. And Jacob Yates has asked us, how do you think the teams will cope with potentially the coldest race on record? And 
one of the longest straights on this year's calendar. Now, we have some considerations with temperature. Obviously, in hotter countries, there's the issue of brakes overheating, of engines overheating. It can be really, really tricky. And we've seen it in race, recent races where drivers have had to pull out to the side so that they're out of dirty air from the car in front of them just to get some clean, colder air coming through the car. But with a colder track, that presents new challenges, including tyres. Now, I'm going to go to who I know is the most favourite fan of tyres ever, Mr. Matt Trumpets. Please, Matt, serenade us with some tyre talk. I would be more than delighted to. Oh, lucky us. fact, well, this is an interesting one. Um, Mm -hmm. But it, it did occur to me that we've had testings sessions where it snowed we we have seen cars in cold weather yeah. run but in terms of racing uh, the closest race i could find and again aided by our lovely patrons and and the slack was the race at uh nurburgring the eiffel grand prix um and i believe 2020 where the ambient temperature was 10 c and the track started around 20 c and dropped to 15 Chilly. now so, but they raced and and they had exactly the kinds of problems that you're going to expect to see here. Namely, some cars, when they went from the soft tire to the medium tire, had issues. And it, this is not the only track where we've seen this. They just simply had issues getting the tire hot enough to work properly. Now, what's mm-hmm. giving everybody a great deal of alarm here is the fact that that the ambient temperature in Las Vegas at uh, this time of year runs from like 6 to 10 C. Very Chilly. cold. So what is that? What is that in American? In American? Uh, in Fahrenheit? I, I, Do you work so in it's Fahrenheit? Like, it's like 38 to 45 maybe. Okay, I think 38 is there. where water freezes. So we're, we're talking 32 chilly. is where water freezes. Oh, is it? Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. So. Fahrenheit, you're talking about, this is new information for me, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. It's just a. It's a different type of measuring it's, temperature. It's, it's just a better way of measuring temperatures for okay, people. Okay, Mr. But don't America, worry about I just it. It's to an American way. Just to be inclusive it. for our for our listeners who aren't necessarily in the cool parts of the world where we use centigrade. <laughs> but this is the point that I want to make about it that that I haven't heard anyone make yet. Is everyone's been very focused on the ambient temperature and concerned that the tires don't work. But what you also have to understand is that strip of black asphalt will be sitting in a desert sun all day so that even if the ambient temperature is cold, that track is absorbing a great deal of solar energy and it will be radiating it out. Track temperatures will be dropping. But just um, by way of comparison, at Brazil, the ambient temperature was 10 degrees cooler in the race than it was in the sprint, but the track temperature was absolutely the same. So it may not be as bad as everyone's worried about once you take into account the fact that as long as it's sunny, the track will probably be much hotter than that as the sun goes down. So so they may be able to stay out of what I would think of being the, the danger zone where no mm-hmm. car can make the tires work at all. Because if those tires don't get hot enough, it, it really is like driving on ice at that yeah. point. And it is an interesting thing to think about from the team's perspective, at least, with obviously the more cars are on track and the more they're going around, the track 
heats up a bit. So I think we could see some really interesting stints in quali where, was it Monza in like 2019, 2020, where they all left it till the absolute last minute of quali to go out because that was when the track was optimum. And then they all missed the checkered flag. So it had to default to the Q2 times. I think we could see some of that. Do you think, Chris? I think it could be exciting. Well, what I'm hoping to see is F1 cars sliding around. Because I think <laughs> F1 on ice. I, no, I genuinely I love watching Formula One cars getting, you know, having less grip and mm-hmm. you know, snaking around a little bit. I think it looks great on TV. I think it highlights the skill of the drivers. It's much mm-hmm. more exciting uh to to watch overall. If it were up to me, F1 cars would have an extra two hundred brake horsepower, uh, but to, like a third of the downforce that they have now. And that would be like just mwah, beautiful television, right? But yeah. um, what I what I, I what I don't know actually is what the surface of the track is, because have they actually left the original asphalt, uh, or have they done what they normally do with street tracks, which is trying to claim that oh yeah we're racing on the public roads when actually we're racing on this temporary new asphalt, uh, uh, which apparently it is. Matt, do you know? I'm pretty sure I would want to double check before I bet large sums of money, but I'd be almost certain they've resurfaced, yeah. if not all of it, very, very large portions of it. Yeah, they so, they have because of all the disruption to the strip that everyone was complaining about. Okay, so if, so if they have done that, then that means it's going to be a darker surface because it's, if it's brand new, then it's going to be almost like venter black, the color of the surface, <laughs> which means it will absorb a little bit more heat during the day, Go, alluding to Matt's point about it taking up heat. Um, during the day what's funny is that the last time they raced in vegas in 82 on the caesar's palace car park was that we had the opposite problem where it was so hot the track was breaking up so they can never seem to get it right in vegas (laughs) well that's vegas baby (laughs) that's all the fun and drama and i guess the teams are just gonna have to play the odds on this one but tires are always a good subject of talk and i think it could be an exciting consideration although i do feel for the fans who are sat still in six degree temperatures christian but i think the race will just be awesome in so many aspects okay. it's gonna be got, we're gonna have good racing riveting. i'm i'm not talking about the racing yet i just think as an event mm-hmm. i think it will be like a sporting event everyone on the planet will be aware of in the next couple of weeks and it will be something everyone talks about it will be a major thing wait till you see the the, the headquarters for liberty and stuff like it's going to be like the first time they released the abu dhabi track uh, to end the season that was also a major thing uh, there was also going to be a lot of people who just hate it uh, find it ridiculous I, I guess because it's a bit overdone from some aspects yeah, but I think uh, in in a few years' time it will find its uh, its form on the calendar as a flagship race, a bit like Austin was at first. But one thing I think is for sure is everyone's going to complain about the tires, and I think that will be just a it will just it's just reality for Formula One these days when you go to a track with five degrees track uh, five degrees ambient temperatures and you have these tires that has such a high. Uh, uh, tire pressure and are just skidding around a bit and everyone's like experimenting still with the skidding around uh, it's probably not going to be the most fun race for the drivers yeah i think i mean a lot of the drivers of 
what we've heard in interviews at least have said we're super excited to go mainly because of the excitement and the splendor that's all around it it's all about celebrating the glitz and the glamour of f1 which especially in the new era when we're trying to be appealing to an american audience a little bit more and appealing to this new generation of f1 watchers i think it'll be really great to have a race like that where you look forward to it just because it's it's Vegas, kind of like with Monaco, where you go and it's such an F1 classic and everyone is so excited for it, not because we're going to see loads of overtakes, because we're not in denial, but because it's a classic. And I do think that Vegas has the capacity for that in the future. I, don't, I think it doesn't really matter how good the race is because it's being promoted and organised by Liberty Media, who, if you've forgotten, are the owners of Formula One. So is is here to stay for a while mm-hmm. and if you're wondering why it's being talked about than any other race in the world yeah you know, aside from their attempts to make it the biggest sporting event of the year i mean that is why i have to say it hasn't really worked though because i mean put your hand up if you've been looking forward to vegas all season not one single hand was raised dear reader not one I mean, they've they've hyped it up so much and I completely understand it because they're trying to make it a race that celebrates the glitz and the glamour, like I said. But it, something about it hasn't worked. I mean, when they put tickets out, for example, to begin with, I think someone said the average weekend ticket price was $7,000. And now if you look on the website, because there are still many tickets available if anyone happens to be in the Vegas area, you can get a whole weekend pass for something like $300. So there's going to be a few empty seats at this rate. It's looking a bit, it's looking a little bit sad so far, but... I think we can all look forward to it. It'll be something a little bit different. And we might have some, we might have the capacity for some future excitement there. And now, as befitting my absolutely prehistoric age, I would like to answer the following reader question, most succinctly sent to us by Remo Elo. He's asking, why do we think there's never been a race in Scandinavia or Finland? And should we have a race there? And I have to, at this point, draw on my ancient well of knowledge (laughs) while ignoring the offended looks of Christian Peterson and say, indeed, there was a Swedish Grand Prix from 1973 to 1978. It came about because Ronnie Peterson, Swedish driver, had been quite successful. And the reason I wanted to mention this, and the only reason I wanted to mention this, is two of the highlights. One, it was the only win for the six-wheel Tyrrell car at the Swedish Grand Prix, and I believe it was 76. And then in 78, it was the only appearance in Formula One at all of the infamously famous Brabham fan car, which won the race after the track surface got slippery with oil. All the other cars had to slow way down, and the fan car just drove like there was nothing at all wrong with the track. And that's perhaps why they never raced it again, because it would have been called illegal. Anyway, so should they have it again? Yeah, sure, if they can get a grade one track. Okay, Christian, go on, put your put your European opinion forward. Well, no Danish Grand Prix. I, I'm, I'm just, I, I need to get my breath first. Yes, I am. Okay. The reference for anyone who can't see Christian right now, he's got a really forlorn look on his face. He's crying. He's holding his chest. He's 
very upset. F1, what are you doing? Get us get us in the land of the Danes. It all started in 61. <laughs> it was um, held at Roskilde Ring, which is uh, placed in a town called Roskilde, which is where the Magnussons are from. The track was 1.4 kilometers long, which is less than a mile. There was no straights. There was a lot of bank corners, and there was 40,000 Danes there watching. And one ticket was 50 cent, half a dollar, uh, I think. And Sterling Moss and Jack Brabham both raced both years, and they respectively won. Uh, but uh, at that point in time in Formula 1, it was so unorganized, so... You, you that particular years they had only eight races on the official Formula One calendar, but all the Formula One drivers went to all sorts of different races and did their both in F one and F two. And this Danish Formula One race was with all the Formula One races, but it wasn't part of the official Formula One calendar. So it, I mean, you could theoretically say that we haven't had a Grand Prix in Denmark, but I challenge you, Romano. <laughs> What? <laughs> okay, right. Let's end this debate then, Chris. Are we bringing a Scandinavian Grand Prix to F1? Do we do it or not? So, so there is, yeah, there is a Grade One mm-hmm. track in Finland um, called the Kimi Ring. Um, it's not uh, Kimi as in Kimi Raikkonen. It's spelled K Y M I, and it was built a couple of years ago. It was opened, for, and but it was made for MotoGP. Uh, so probably the safety standards exceed what is needed for Formula One, uh, but I I would put forward is is rallying not a more popular form of motorsport in the Scandinavian region, and that is kind of the big ticket motorsport out there. I don't know, Christian is is rallying a big thing. Uh, well, rally is a bit like uh, in fam- family would rally cross, and I would say those two things are probably the most popular. But mm. that is because they are approachable. The cars are cheap. Uh, okay, so it's an accessibility thing. Oh, rallying is not a thing really. It's uh, we do have good drivers, but it's. I mean, I, I literally thought that was just how you commuted to work. <laughs> yes, you must cross this icy valley. I, I can't speak for the Finns, oh. though. I mean, oh, here we go. And I'm saying this with the the biggest heart of all. But the Finns are strange people in the best way. Okay, heavy on the in the best way. We are. We love everyone here on Miss Apex Podcast. <laughs> Every time I meet a Finn anywhere in the world, I love them. And yeah, but. I, I'm pretty sure everyone will say this about Finns. They are not like other people. They are, they are themselves in every different... In, I mean, they are all a little bit like Kimi Raikkonen. Oh, and can't that only be a good thing? I love Kimi. Whoa. It is a good thing. It, they are original. They, um, they, they are maybe a little bit... Uh, I know you can't generalize, but uh, every time I've met a Finn, I've loved them, but they've been really introvert in best way <laughs> okay well then maybe f1 i mean for those those who um might not necessarily know grade one um is achieved by a circuit from fulfilling various criteria and f1 will only race on an f on a grade one rated circuit just because it comes with various things like asphalt quality various safety things that make it compatible not just for f1 but for f1 safety standards so when we're looking at 
various circuits that could be raced at by F1, they have to be grade one listed, which does mean it narrows down a lot of the searches. Um, so yeah, if we could get to Scandinavia, that would be great. Make it even more of a world championship. But I suppose we do have to draw the line somewhere. We can't be going to every single country as I think that might take a little bit of a while. How many countries are there? Like 273 something? 282. 200, well, there you go. Well, As much as I would love a daily Grand Prix, I think it would lose its... The Vatican City oh, Grand Prix. Please. That's what. We oh my need. gosh! Can we get the Pope Mobile involved for the for the drivers doing their like little laps? The safety car. Oh my goodness! We've just started something, <laughs> guys. Guys! Oh my goodness! Wow, that's the. Oh right, <laughs> F1. This is for you. We want this. I'm going to start a petition, dear listeners. Dear listeners, you expect to receive an email from me in the next couple of days, and I would appreciate your signatures. I want the Pope Mobile as the safety car and i want it going around with with the pope doing a blessing babies and doing nice waves to because it, it would be lovely <laughs> cultural aspect guys we've got something here we actually and have if got you're watching something. this if you're watching this on tiktok because i've no doubt this bit is going <laughs> to end up on tiktok now let us know oh in the my comments. goodness right so I would like my request for next season. All I want is I want a Vatican City Grand Prix and I want the safety car to be the Pope in his Pope mobile. End of. So on the subject of Scandinavia, we have a listener called Adam Danish who's written in to us. Like that's so great. That was really professional, wasn't it? As a new F1 fan, I've loved listening to the podcast these past couple of years. Thank you, Adam. I've got maybe a stupid question. Don't worry, there's no such thing. But how do some F1 corners get their nickname? Silverstone seems to be the king of this. So, for example, Maggots and Beckett's being one he thinks about a lot. Do any of us have a favourite corner name or favourite memory of a certain corner? Right, I'm going to... None of you talk. I want this one. I want this one first. I'm jumping in. So, one of my favourite things about F1 is the... Well, one of the things that comes up most for me being in a social media space is gatekeeping. There's so much of it in the sport with, oh, you're not a real fan. Name who was the 1973 world champion. And I hate gatekeeping. It sucks. It's awful. But one thing I will always gatekeep is knowing your corner names for your circuits. It's the way you know a top fan from a casual listener. And there's nothing wrong with a casual listener. But I know who I'm talking to if I go, oh, yeah, I know they're just going around cops right now. Because I, I know I get some funny looks when I'm on... I'll go like sim racing or something and I'll be talking through my lap on Silverstone and they'll go, how do you know all this? Because I went and I learned it and I revised it. It's a rite of passage for all F1 fans. Right, put your hands down. I'm not done. Right. So, for example, we look at Silverstone. Silverstone only has one corner. This is a fun fact. Silverstone only has one corner that's actually named after the way it looks. So unlike a corner like Parabolica at Monza where... It's shaped like a parabola, a curve, hence the name. Silverstone only has the loop, and that's the only name on the circuit that's after the shape. But there's other corners, for example, Stowe, named after the nearby Stowe School, a very famous private school. It's named according to local landmarks. We've got the Wall of Champions in Canada, where I think about six different world champions have stacked it into this wall on a chicane. It's a rite of passage, in my opinion. Or is it passage? Am I being northern right now? Is it pass passage? Is it passage? Am I being silly? Anyway, I sorry, I have a northern father, and sometimes these isms slip out. 
So yeah, I know it's horrible. Spanners is like going, oh, gross in the background for anyone who can't hear him. But I'm going to go to the panel now. Iconic corners, some of these. Absolutely iconic. And iconic for a reason, for example, Wall of Champions. What's your favorite? Go spa- go, mm, go right, trumpets. So I-, I wish to disagree with your entire premise. Unacceptable. The corners are numbered. And drivers and engineers only refer to the numbers when they talk to each other. And if we're going to talk about where the names for Silverson came from, it could be basically basically described as things we found laying on the ground near here. If you go through all of the turns, and I guess we include turns like parabolica. Oh, it looked like a bird that I saw flying past. So I call it that. The names are for the commentators. The names are for the fans. But you do not have to learn the names to be a fan of Formula One. Uh, th- that's not what I said. I would. I will. I will not go down as a gatekeeper. I will not. I would. I, w- I will clarify my point, Chris. I know you're waving your hand. Right. Be patient. I'll be with you in a second. I. I. W- I will not say that you, you. To qualify as a fan, you need to know your corner names. I'm just saying it's an important rite of passage. Everyone has to sit looking at a circuit map and go, "Oh, is this Maggots or Beckett's?" Because I, I've been through it. We all have to go through it, Chris. Yeah, I love how Matt started his point by saying, oh, well, drivers only use uh, numbers, so you're an idiot for using corner names, and then ended his point with, but you should be a fan if you want to... I I don't think I called anyone an idiot for using numbers or names. You did. You said it specifically. Look, I love corner names. I love corner names. Uh, I love the history of where they Mm -hmm. get them from. And, you know, Matt is right. 99% of corner names are just whatever they're Mm -hmm. next to. You know, for uh, example, at uh, the first corner at Monaco is named after the Mm -hmm. uh, the chapel. uh, Or they're named after people of significance. Mm -hmm. So same track at Monaco, Anthony Noakes. uh, Or the, um, uh, going back to places, there's the uh, the Fairmont Hotel. exactly. Fairmont Hairpin or whatever whatever that hotel's called. Now it's had three different names (laughs) over the over the last 60 odd years uh so i i like um the ones with a bit of backstory Absolutely. to them as well like o rouge oh, sure right very famous red yes. river because of the red river mm-hmm. that runs under the circuit there right uh and uh so uh, people of significance or they get named after a driver yes and that's a lovely uh, touch yeah yes so you have ascari at the center uh, Monza, for example you have the Center S is the Hamilton Strait now as well. I'm sure there are others that I'm not uh, remembering. I would love to do a show dedicated to every oh corner name in Formula One and how and they got their name. And every listener just fell yes, asleep. Immediately. You know what, Chris? You've lost your, well, you've lost your talking rights. Christian? So um, this just in. Uh, originally, the corner, corners at the spa was named after European cities. Oh, so when they built the track back in, I think, early 70s or maybe late 60s. So Corner 9, which is the interesting corner on Spa, was originally called uh, – no, I'm going to wait with the original. What's because, it called now, just so we all know which one you're talking right now, about? It's called Jackie X. Oh, you mean Speaker's Corner. Yeah, or yeah, or Rivage too. So it's been known as Speaker's Corner because I think it was where the speaker was back in the days for all the uh, fans there. 
No, it, it was the only, like, apart from Eau Rouge and, like, the main straight, it was the only corner you could see from the commentary box. Ah, that was out, yeah. And then it was called Rewage 2 because it was after Rewage, and then it's most famously been called No Name for some strange reason, and now it's officially been named Jaggy X. But back in the day, when they built the track, this corner was actually called Copenhagen, which is funny because I'm from Denmark, <laughs> so we can laugh now. <laughs> I like corner names. I think they add something to a circuit and you know a circuit is a classic when it's got the corner names. Something to me, it it really appeals to me as a fan. You know, you feel like you're coming home to Spa, you know, with with La Source into into Eau Rouge, into Radion. It's all beautiful. And it's feel there's something so classic about it that I think really adds to the character of a circuit. No, I okay. I, I, just, I can't I can't agree with that um at all. But there are there are nice ones at Silverstone as well. Obviously, they got Brooklands, which is named after the Brooklands circuit, which is the oldest racetrack in the world, I think it is, certainly in the UK. Um, there are nice ones. I mean, Aintree, very similar as well. And then you've got, like, Hangar Straight as well, because Silverstone used to be a World War II, like, airfield. Um, so it's named after the Hangars. And then you've got Wellington Straight, named after the Wellington Bombers that they used to house there as well. So I like the fact that you get this sense of history. And it's why really only the older circuits tend to have this because they've been around for, you know, 40, 50, 60 odd uh, years. The the ones I'm really unfamiliar with, though, are the, um, the, the ones at Zandvoort. I really need to learn more of those. And I would join. I will. I will pitch to Spanners during the off season to do a corner naming show, regardless of how you feel about that, Antonia. Just, just a small comment on that. I, I, I think one thing we forget about this is when when you have those local names, it brings a lot to the story. So if you watch Tour de France, for instance, eighty percent of the story is just commentators talking about where we are now, the red wine, yada yada yada. And we need this like heritage when we go to a track. Las Vegas is one thing. But when we go to the old classical tracks, all the history that it brings, I, I think a lot of that is in the names and in, in the things we remember or the accidents happening around some name that is locally planned. Mm -hmm. We'll tie this up. But before we do from this question, I would like to know, just to answer Adam Danishir's question, do we have a favorite corner or a favorite memory at a corner? So I'm going to go in first. For me, it's Eurige Radion. I It's a bucket list thing for me to go to Spa and watch the race from Eau Rouge. It's for me as a fan, that is the one thing where if I don't go to a race in my life, the one I'd be most devastated not to go to would be Spa. And I would want to sit at Eau Rouge. And for me, it's just the most iconic, of course, not necessarily in the best way, given its history with accidents. But I love it. So let's go through the panel, Chris. Your favorite or most memorable corner? So, just on the Eau Rouge, as somebody who has been up Eau Rouge, climbed up it earlier this year on my first visit to Spa, it is a rite of passage. The first time you go to Spa, you should find some time, if possible, to try and get up Eau Rouge. I tried to do the same thing at Monza with the banking, couldn't quite squeeze that in. I was very annoyed at myself. But anyway, uh, and yes, it is true that when you're going up it, all you can see is sky and the tops of trees. Wonderful, right? Uh, but in terms of, I, I'm looking at this in which ones do I like doing on the sim the most when I'm doing eye racing? That to me, because I is just easy flat these days, right? Even in, you know, GT machinery, since it got reprofiled, it's just flat now. Uh, I would say Puan. Same track, 
but for, for me i'd love in the sim when you're approaching Puon and you just do that little lift and then chuck it in back on the power you try and hang on to it for as long as possible it's so satisfying when you get it right okay okay so chris is putting himself in driver shoes matt are you going to do the same what's a corner that you're particularly fond of well, I, I was going to say, I think from a watching point of view, the S's at Suzuka remain one of Ooh, my yeah. favorite things yeah. to observe. Mm -hmm. However, as a driver and as a driver who's actually driven the circuit, I'm going with Maggots and Beckett's. And it's Ooh, just okay. because on one of my not as many as I wanted laps in an actual race car, I, I, I got to that left-hander. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to get, like, I'm going too fast. Mm. While the person in the other seat was yelling at me, turn more. And I did. And the car just stuck. It was astonishing. And it was my Aww. first lesson. Pip Hammond. Thank you, Pip Hammond. Friend of the show. Love that guy. Awesome driver. Excellent, excellent Aww. builder of race cars. And multi- champion in 750 mc classic stock saw. hatch chris it was that was that where you started your commentating that's certainly where you started your reporting it's, it's where i was um reporting i wasn't commentating uh just then yet but pip actually has been on the mic with me at our own karting events this is true this is true um and and it was my first lesson in how much the difference is between the performance of a car built to race and a car that you drive on the roads and for that reason it will always stick with me uh, so anyone who goes through there flat yeah impressive okay okay this is this is good christian are you also going to offer a driver's perspective um i don't care about the names really <laughs> so uh, for me it's it's definitely a driving perspective and uh if you can get the s's at suzuka right I, i'm not sure there's anything more rewarding but it is also a combination of corners, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you can get that right, and I'm only talking sim, of course, mm -hmm. it's a very, very rewarding okay. feeling. But T1 in Suzuka as well ha has some of the same, the, the, the speed you put into there and T2, I mean, just that entire combination of corners is I will legendary. I agree, Chris, very quickly. Just in terms of like what has the best name, like the, some of the ones at the Nordschleife, uh, where you do actually have to, you know, know the corner names. You can't go in. Oh yeah, at turn 126, oh, the car was oversteer. So there are there are some good ones like uh, the foxhole, which is because there was a, a fox that like died in a, a part of the circuit when it was being. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, dur during the construction. And then there's ones like l named after local monks or like local gallows. There's like so much history in that. If you've got like a spare 10 minutes, Google the names of the Nordschleife Corners and where they get the names from. Oh, well, guys, that that's very interesting. And it's nice to always hear everyone's opinions on this. So please, if you have a favorite corner or a favorite memory of a corner, please do let us know. You can drop it in the comments here. You can just send us an email, have a chat with us on feedback at mistapex.net. And of course, if you would like one of your questions to be answered, also you can use that email address to get in and we'll, I'm sure, have some very exciting debates with you. But that is going to be all from us for tonight. Thank you very much for coming and listening and spending some time with us, whether it's on your Monday morning commute, live on YouTube or any other time. I think as Spanners always says, work hard, be kind and have fun. We'll try our best to do so too. This has been Miss Apex. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.